I would like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 86. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forever. For thy loving kindness towards me is great. Thou hast delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Father, we thank you that you have delivered our souls, and we ask you to teach us your ways. Lord, not only that we will hear teaching, but that we will receive the, the teaching of your Spirit in our own hearts, that you will remove the faultiness of human presentation, and that you will bring, make the truth what it ought to be to each one of us. Lord, we desire to know the truth, the truth that Jesus said will set us free. And Lord, we thank you for the joy and the peace that we have in you, for the hope, for the fact that even as the world and the flesh and the devil oppress us, that we can derive our strength from you and walk by faith. Lord, I thank you for the scripture. I thank you for the account that we have of Hannah and of Samuel and the way you work through so many men and women in these past millennia. Lord, we trust that you will bless as your word is proclaimed this day on this property in every class and throughout this city of Reading and around the world. We're thankful, Lord, that we have connection through prayer with many who are, have or are proclaiming your word even this day. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have forged ahead to the second chapter of 1 Samuel. And today we'll begin looking at that particular chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'd like to read, if I might, the first 11 verses. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is, God, is a God of knowledge, and with, him, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire, full hire themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. The Lord brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. This passage of Scripture records a thanksgiving prayer 
sung by Hannah before the Lord at Shiloh. Whether Hannah authored this particular psalm or simply adopted it for her prayer is, is unknown. It is, as you may have noticed as we read through it, it is a victory song. And there are several, it does have a kind of a war motif to it. As a result, some commentators believe that this psalm was probably written at an earlier time after Israel had one of its great victories and was sung before the Lord and that Hannah simply adapted it to her particular prayer of thanksgiving. Well, it doesn't really matter, which happens to be true, whatever the case. The psalm is here because it clearly expresses the joy of Hannah over the might, the mercy, and the justice of God. What was the victory that she is proclaiming in this passage? It's a, it's a psalm of victory. What is the victory? It's the victory that she had through God over her barrenness. And again, as I tried to emphasize in that first chapter as we studied it, a barrenness was taken extremely seriously in the day that we're talking about, far more than it is today. In the day that we're talking about, no one chose to be childless. No one. Because a woman's worth was totally wrapped up in her ability to bear children. I'm not saying that that was something the Lord imposed on that society. It is not, but that's simply the way the society evolved and developed with that particular focus. In this passage, we read some very interesting terms. For example, the use of the word horn, which means strength, and the use of the word rock, which basically is a synonym for fortress. These are common in the Psalms, and, and you know yourself. If you've read through many of the Psalms, you come across the horn of my salvation, you come across the rock of my salvation, whatever it might be. And the, these two terms are particularly common in the Psalms of David. For example, way uh, towards the end of 2 Samuel, in the 22nd chapter of 2 Samuel, there is a Psalm of David recorded there. And in that psalm, we read these words, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Very similar words to the words of Hannah here. In fact, some feel that probably Hannah's prayer influenced David. We have to understand, I think, that the ancients understood the word and, and knew the word, especially a man like David and uh, it was very, very important in his life, and he certainly knew the words of Hannah. These words have a more powerful meaning to the ancients of that time than they do to us today, because to them, uh, there was no such thing as an atomic bomb. There was no such thing as an Abrams M60 tank. You know, there was none of these things that we think of today in warfare. Warfare was hand warfare. It was sword and shield. It was a bow and arrow. And so the, the strength of an ox, the ox was usually the epitome of strength in that society, the, the powerful ox who, who, of course, had horns, and the deer, which had horns, and the ibex, which has that, those two big, long, pointed horns, and very common in that part of the world. These were symbols of strength to those people. So to use the word horn uh, as, as a synonym for strength was understood very clearly in those days. To us, they say, well, the horn of my salvation, we think... Uh, a trumpet, a trombone, uh, what kind of horn are we talking about here, you know? Or something of that nature, or maybe a cornucopia. But no, the horn of war. And of course, to them in those days, there was no greater bastion than a mighty crag, a rocky hilltop 
from which you know weapons could be hurled down at an approaching enemy. That was the greatest uh, form of defense in those days to have a, a rocky crag like that. For example, those of you who have been to Israel, you've certainly seen Masada, that great butte we would call it, a mesa that sticks up with a flat top on it and walls had been built around it. Well, they were, they were strengthened by Herod, but they had been built earlier by the Hasmoneans. And, and such a fortress could hold out against the Romans for many, many years even. So it was a mighty, mighty crag of, of defense. And so this, this concept is very important to the ancient Hebrews. Verse 3 in this passage where it says, Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed, was probably aimed at the enemies of God in, in both its original intent, the intent maybe even by Hannah, but sort of tangently, it was a reference to Penina, I think. <laughs> I think Hannah was saying there uh, to boast no more so proudly, Penina, because God has blessed me and has given me a son, a son whom God will use to do mighty things. And I think the last line of verse <clears throat> 5, where it talks, where it says, but she who has many children languishes, could be also a kind of a roundabout reference to Penina. Yes, you have more children than I, but you will languish because your spirit is bitter. The whole psalm exalts, <clears throat> first of all, God's omniscience. In it we read, the Lord is a God of knowledge. God knows all things. And, and really, there's great comfort in that. I would feel very fearful to worship a God who didn't really know what was coming down the pike. You know? and, and that he was as uncertain of what the future was as we are. That'd be very scary. But we have a God who knows the beginning from the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Then also in this particular passage, she exalts God's omnipotence. You read statements in there like, the bow of the mighty, the bows of the mighty are shattered. The Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. He's all powerful. We trust in a God who can do all things. And so we do not have to fear. And then thirdly, she emphasized his justice. She said in there, he lifts up the needy to make them sit with nobles. He keeps the feet of his godly ones. So we serve a God who is omniscient, who is omnipotent, a God of justice, a God of mercy, a God who really understands your every thought, my every thought, before I even think it. And that helps us, I think, to, to stay up with God, too, in the sense that there's no use hiding our sin because He already knows it. He knew it before we ever committed it. And, of course, that's one of the truths, to me at least. Now, this is problematic because people argue about these things, but I think of the fact that when, when, when I came to Christ and my sins were cast upon Him, those were not simply the sins of the past, because with God there is no past, present, or future. They were the sins of my life to, in total. Not that I, I don't need to repent of my sins as I walk through life, but that I can repent of them knowing that He has cleansed me from these things because he already understood who I would be and what I would do when he brought me into his kingdom. The phrase that I referred to a moment ago in verse 5 where it says, even the barren gives birth to seven, has to be understood as kind of a generic 
phrase. It is not specific, at least in number, to Hannah. It's specific to, num to Hannah in the sense that she's praising God that uh, the, the barren has brought forth child. But the, the number seven, you remember when we talked about Ruth, I mentioned the fact that the number seven in reference to sons was sort of like a, um, an ideal number, a, a number that simply would mean many. It doesn't specifically mean seven because when you look at the case of Hannah, she did not have seven children. She had six children. <laughs> she was delighted to have six children. She was overwhelmed to have one. And then God blessed her with five more. Verse 10 of this passage was prophetic, both in its reference to the ultimate judgment that Yahweh would bring upon the earth and to his giving to his people of an anointed king whose strength would be exalted by God. Now, Israel had not yet known a king. Israel would not yet demand a king for another half a, a, half a century. It would be before Israel would demand a king. So what we see in that verse where we read, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens, and he will give strength to his king, and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Here we have both the nearer and the ultimate focus of this prophecy being fulfilled in the Davidic line and in the coming of Messiah. Yes, David would come as the great king of Israel, but the ultimate focus down the line would be in the coming of Messiah. What I find really fascinating about this particular passage is that if you read the liberal theologians, go to, I'm not advocating that you buy a set of, of liberal uh, commentaries. It's a waste of money. <laughs> but if you read some of the liberal theologians, you will discover that they refuse to accept the possibility of true biblical prophecy. They argue, for example, that this psalm could not have been written before the 10th century, and actually most of them say much later in time. And the reason they give is that the composer of the psalm could not have been a person who lived before Israel had its first king. Why? Because there's a reference to Israel's king. So how could anybody know that Israel would have a king until Israel had a king? Well, for you and for me, it is not a problem because we see the fact that there is God's ability to look ahead and to prophesy through his, through his people. And so we have, in, in effect, Hannah is a prophetess as well as a woman whom God has used to bring forth Samuel. David's psalm, recorded in 2 Samuel 22, seems to draw rather heavily on the song of Hannah. We won't turn to it. We will eventually get there. That's towards the end of 2 Samuel. But also there's a kind of a close parallel between the song of Hannah and the song of Mary, which is recorded in the first chapter of Luke, which is known as the Magnificat. The influence of Hannah's psalm on Mary's psalm is primarily in the statement of the omnipotence of God and of the mercy of God and the justice of God. There are very few actual repeated words. The beginning of the two psalms are, are very similar, but the rest of it are, are different in terms of the words, but the, the emphasis on those factors, God's omnipotence, mercy, and justice, is very similar in the two. And certainly Mary knew this psalm. Verse 11 of this passage seems like a very matter-of-fact statement. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest just a factual statement. 
But I think that this particular verse is, is overflowing with underlying emotions. Following the formal transfer of Samuel, where, where Elkanah and Hannah actually came to Eli and, and transferred the care of Samuel to Eli, and then Hannah prayed or sang this psalm of thanksgiving to God before the tabernacle there. After these events had taken place, we, we read that Elkanah took his family home. He went home with Hannah and Penina and all the children. Penina, of course, isn't even mentioned anymore, but certainly she was there. And he took his whole family home. They had fulfilled their promise. They had given Samuel to the Lord as they had promised they would do. But certainly, as they left Shiloh and began the journey down the hill towards Ramah, their hearts were torn over leaving a three-year-old boy in the charge of an elderly priest who had already proven to be a relatively ineffective father. This, of course, would have been particularly hard on Hannah because Samuel was her only child, a child born to her after so many years of barrenness and pain and suffering, and now the child is born, and only three years after the child is born, she has to turn or does turn this boy over to Eli. He's just been weaned. He's been so near to her for these three years. She could easily have rationalized, and this is where sometimes we kick in. <laughs> she could easily have rationalized that he's too young. He, he just, he, he, you know, he, he can't adjust to this, this old guy here, you know, being his pseudo-father here. And so the Lord won't mind if I keep him for a few more years. The Lord will understand. What this displays is the character of Hannah. She was a woman of her word. But not only that, she was a woman of great faith. And she thought, if God, in response to my prayer, miraculously gives me a son, certainly I can trust that son into his care with the elderly Eli, and that God will enable this boy to grow up and to become the man that God had called him to be and to be an honor to Hannah. So I believe that was her faith. I don't believe it was easy for her. Again, as I have tried to emphasize before, I believe there was a major spiritual battle went on there because the evil one, just, just think about it for a minute. There are things that we don't understand about supernatural powers. But there are over six billion people living in the world today. I don't know how many demons there are. But in the day we're talking about, there was probably only a very few hundred million people living in the world, maybe not more than a quarter of a billion, which meant there were a lot more demons to go around per person to quantify demons. I don't know if you can do that. but So I think that the, the evil force upon an individual could even have been greater in those days than it is now. This is speculation on my part, by the way. But I'm just thinking, it was not, what I'm saying is, it was difficult for Hannah to do. And I think the evil one was whispering in her ear all the time, trying to tell, you don't want to do this. That, that old dude will ruin your little boy. But she had faith, and she believed God, and she left Samuel. Well, let's read on in the beginning of verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests... They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come 
while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you, will, you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. How many of you would come to church on a repeated basis if they stuck you up against the wall and took everything out of your wallet every time you came to church? What this passage does is helps us to see a little glimpse of the amazing ways in which God works. It was extremely distressing to Hannah and Elkanah for Hannah to be barren for all those years. And yet it was the will of God. It was the will of God because it was part of God's divine plan. Her frustration and her pain through the years of her barrenness brought her to the place where she was willing to give her son totally over to the Lord's service. Now God knew, of course, that Hophni and Phinehas would be evil men. And therefore, God was preparing a replacement for those men. Samuel would mature just in time to receive the mantle of spiritual leadership in Israel. Eli was not only the chief priest, he was the Shofat. He was the leader of Israel at that particular time. However, those who were to replace him, who were his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, we read in the scripture that they were Literally, the scripture says, the sons of Belial, which is translated, as you see there, worthless men, lawless men. In the intertestamental period, the period between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there's a period of roughly four centuries in there. During that time period, the Jews began to use the word Belial as a synonym for Satan. Now, that was not its meaning at the time we're looking at it, but that's how significant that term would be. And down through time, it would eventually be looked upon as a synonym for the evil one himself. The last words of verse 12 tell us why they were lawless men. And these words literally echo down through the corridors of time. They knew not the Lord. The literal reading there is, they had no regard for Yahweh. What is interesting here is that these are tragic words. These are the most tragic words that can be said about anyone. There is nothing more damning that can be said about anyone than to say that they had no regard for the Lord, because that condemns a person to eternal hell. Those fateful words were augmented by the statement in verse 13, indicating there, as you look at, at verse 13, they, they kind of, when they separated the verses here, they chopped off in the middle of a sentence. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. So they not only didn't know the Lord, 
they didn't even know how to act as a priest. And strangely enough, they made no attempt to do any of the priestly duties or to even put up a facade of doing the priestly duties. They weren't even as good as Elmer Gantry, who tried to at least act as if he were a preacher, in spite of all his vileness. They, they put up no sense of spiritual leadership. They simply used the fact that they were the high priest's sons to openly steal from those who came to the tabernacle to worship, and later on we're going to read to literally rape the worshipers. I mean, often in pagan temples, things like this didn't even happen. Not openly, anyway, as it was happening here. These guys didn't even hide it. The point of verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 is to illustrate the degree to which Eli's sons did not regard the Lord. It wasn't like, well, you know, they just didn't really give God the time of day. It's a lot worse than that. Rather than accepting portions of the sacrificial animal, the portions that God had designated ought to be for the priests. And if you go back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are statements in there about what the priests were to receive. The servants of Hophni and Phinehas were to go to the uh, worshipers and to take all they could get. Take all you can get. They would take, and, and um, scholars say that some of these large bronze forks have survived. And there are some examples of them, but this large bronze three-pronged fork, they, they would take this down to the kettle in which the sacrificial meal was being prepared, and they would jam this thing through the kettle and catch all the meat they possibly could catch on this big fork. And then they would take it for the priests and leaving the worshipers with a little bit of beef broth or lamb broth or whatever left. That's about it, is what was happening. Furthermore, Rather than waiting for their share of meat after the proper burning had taken place, the burnt offerings had been made, the fat and the blood had been properly taken care of, Eli's sons demanded their share first. Instantly you begin to butcher the animal, they wanted their part. Before anything was sacrificed, before it was properly drained or anything. Concerning the actions of Eli's sons, the, the commentator Fred Young notes the following. He says, the sons of Eli were guilty of a twofold sin. First, instead of taking only their allotted portion, they took all that the fork would hold. And we're not talking about a little dinner fork. We're talking about a big fork. Secondly, they took their share before the fat and blood were offered in sacrifice to the Lord. Apparently, the priest did not accept invitations to every family meal but wanted prize cuts sent to their home. They didn't want to eat with the parishioners. Instead, they wanted the good food sent to their home so they could eat in their own comfort. To make sure of getting these prime cuts, they insisted that their servants get the best pieces before the offerings were even made. So what you see here are, of course, individuals who didn't care about the law of God, who didn't care about the proper order for a sacrifice and dealing with the, the, the sacrificial meal and the burning of the offering. They simply wanted what they wanted now, and they wanted the best. In verse 16, we discovered that some protested this violation, and when they did so, they were threatened with physical violence if they didn't cooperate. Can you imagine the shock 
to those particularly who were meticulous in observing the law. Now, it may not have been the majority of worshipers in those days, but certainly there were those who came there to meticulously follow the law that had been given by God through Moses. And here the priests were. The priests were violating the law. Of all the people to openly flaunt the word of God, the priests. That's like the pastor uh, being the head of the mob, you know? Now, now think of those who came to Shiloh out of habit or came to Shiloh simply because uh, there was family pressure to, to go up and do the thing you're supposed to do. Just like some people go to church out of habit. They go to church because they feel if they don't go to church, somebody's going to say some bad things about them. They don't go to church because they want to worship God. They don't go to church because they want to fellowship with God's people. So certainly there were those. And they would come and they say, if this is going to happen, I'm not going anymore. I mean, who needs to go to worship and be strong-armed by the priest? What about those who believe that the whole religious thing was a bunch of poppycock anyway, just like many people do today? Well, that it was a kind of unnecessary ripoff. Well, can anything further confirm it in their minds than this? It's like in America today, there are many who feel, as Lenin did, that religion is just a crutch. It's for weak people. And then, of course, they can go around proving this by how many people who supposedly are Christians end up doing really bad things and being in bad situations. See, we told you so. So what was happening here was that Phineas and Hophni were giving God a very bad name. And Eli wasn't helping much because Eli had not raised these young men to fear the Lord as he ought to have done. I think that maybe in his old age, God did use him to help Samuel to grow in the ways of the Lord. There are times when, when people have failed as parents because of failure in their own lives. When they become grandparents, they are older and wiser, and they really put out an effort to do what was right. It's kind of a generation late, but, but it seems like that may have been what was happening in the case of Eli. Verse 17 summed up the passage by emphasizing that these heinous sins of Hophni and Phinehas stemmed from their despising of the Lord's offerings. They not only didn't know the Lord, they had no regard for the Lord, they despised His offerings. Now the word translated despised there is not the common word for despise used normally in the Old Testament. It is a word that is generally translated as spurned or to treat with contempt. It's, it's even more uh, damning than the normal word for despise in Hebrew. And this particular word is almost always used only in reference to God, to people having contempt and spurning God. The weight of the word is emphasized by its context in another passage. Let me read you a few words from the first chapter of Isaiah. Alas, now notice the juxtaposition of these, these damning phrases. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. It's the same word used here as it is in 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel chapter 2. 
I mean, Hophni and Phineas fit exactly with these words. Weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. A little later, Isaiah uses the word again when he speaks in the fifth chapter, when he speaks of those who despise the word of the Lord, and he says that they are rotten and they will return to dust. It's a really a damning word. So we're not talking about just normal sinners here, just neglectful people, people who are, who are just thinking a little bit more about themselves than they are about the other people, and, you know, just a little off kilter here. We're talking about people who are way off the scale, men who have been exposed to the truth. They had heard the truth. Eli was the priest, and, and he is not condemned for not having done priestly things. He is only condemned for having raised vile sons. And so certainly they knew what the truth was, but they rejected the truth. They were supposed to be the servants of God, but they had no regard for God's sacrifices. Yet we find further that they have willfully and openly rejected both God and His truth. The truth of God is an expression of God Himself. To reject His truth is to reject Him. And they were blatantly living lives that were totally focused on their own self-interest. I want this prime cut. Their concern was feeding their body literally and figuratively. Well, I hope they got lots of good meat because that's all the good they were going to get. Such was the world in the days of Noah. If you go back to the sixth chapter of Genesis, you read that in the days of Noah, th there was none who did good. Every man was after his own self-interest. It was only Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And, and how did God deal with that? Oh, he said, we're a flood. And, and as uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford used to sing, and washed them all away. You know? I mean, he drowned the entire population of the earth, save for eight people. So what is God going to do with Hophni and Phinehas? Are, are they going to be able to live lives flaunting God and continuing this with, without God uh, bringing repercussions in their lives? Absolutely not. The days of Hophni and Phinehas were numbered. It's directly related, of course, to the maturity of Samuel. And if they had had any inkling, <laughs> they, of course, would have done in Samuel knowing that as soon as he was mature, they'd be dead, because that's literally what happened. Let me, in closing, read from Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in the first verse, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds. Now, we're not talking about guys out there herding sheep. We're talking about the priests. We're talking about the spiritual leaders of Israel here. Say to those priests, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. If this isn't a description of Hophni and Phinehas, I don't know what is. 
and they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and in every high hill, and my flock was scattered over the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. God is speaking of his people in their spiritual sense. It is the job of the shepherd to heal the brokenhearted, to minister to the sick and the needy, and to bring the good news of salvation, and to not only bring it, but to demonstrate it. And these two men had absolutely no light in themselves with which to do this or any care. And as a result, God was not going to leave his people without a godly one. So we see in the first chapter and in the second chapter of 1 Samuel, God's plan to provide Israel with a godly leader, a man who would become Israel's first great prophet, a man who would become Israel's last and greatest judge, and the man who would anoint Israel's first and second kings. I mean, what more pivotal person can there be in history? He stands, in my opinion, right up there with Abraham and Moses as, the great, as a great man of God. And, and where did he come from? came from a woman who couldn't even bring forth a child. But miraculously, God gave her the ability to bring forth this son. And he would be more than the union of the genes of Hannah and the genes of Elkanah. He'd be a man upon whom God's spirit rested. And God would bring him out of an unlikely background, not only from this relatively uh, poor and, and obscure Levite family, but would have him nurtured spiritually by a priest who had failed miserably and one day would die ignominiously and his two sons would be slaughtered because of the vileness with which they treated the word of God. Well, we'll look at the rest of the second chapter next week and, and move on from there.